O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearness of kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouths are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, you are our salvation. I pray that we would see ourselves here, even our need here, even in David's suffering. Lord, it is for us to be taught by your word. It is to us to be influenced by it. It is profitable for us here. Profit it to us by understanding it rightly, by applying it rightly, Lord, by giving us faith so that we will, even when we sin, come to you, not flee from you, so that we might be forgiven and saved. In Jesus' name, amen. The title is various. I mean, it's been translated various ways. And because of that, it's, it's difficult. The titles are difficult. Let me just say, we don't always know because they use very technical, liturgical terms. We don't always know what they meant by that. This one is in the ESV, a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. It's for a memorial in the, in the Nazmi, in the King James. It's to bring remembrance. It's a Psalm of remembrance, sometimes translated as, it's, that's, that's the main concern of the Psalm, is that it is a Psalm that brings to remembrance either the sin of David or David is crying out, remember me, O God. It's, the idea is one of those two, but, but both uh, have their conclusion in their heart in, in the forgiveness of sin and the restoration and salvation of God's man by God himself. He seeks the help of the Lord in this psalm. This psalm is a penitential psalm. 
It's one where David is remarkably in the mercy of God. He is seeking the forgiveness of God. Now, David wrote the previous psalm. Remember Psalm 37? We considered it last week. And in that psalm, we have the wicked and the righteous contrasted. And if you're not careful, I said, if you come to these psalms that have the wicked and the righteous contrasted, and you just see them, wickedness and righteousness in, in the categories of conduct, you will, you will not understand the rest of Scripture. Because here we see David, a sinner, and, and under a burden because he believes God is judging him for his sin. Great tumult of soul is David's because of sin. And so the category of wicked and righteous, as I said last week, are categories of covenant, love, it's of faith, it's of being within the household of God by faith. Yes, it is in right conduct within the parameters of God's gracious salvation. This is a penitential psalm. It's a prayer. It's one that I would encourage us to go to often. Something that we'll see in this psalm is that David is not well. Physically speaking, he's not well. Uh, I've just gone through a period of time. In fact, the last year and a half of my life has been sort of back and forth between one issue and another issue, physically speaking, and certainly that is trying. This psalm is for those of us who suffer with physical infirmities. Also, it is for those of us who sin and feel the weight of our sin. And so it's for God's people. The occasion of this psalm is uncertain, but most likely it has to do with David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. We believe that, actually Delish, the scholar, said that he believes in succession, and I encourage you to read these in order. Psalm 6, this psalm, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, and Psalm 32, if you read them in that order, he says that's probably the order of David as he is going through both the beginnings of his conviction of soul because of his sin after Nathan the prophet confronts him with his sin with Bathsheba as also the resolution. We've already gone through uh, Psalm 32 sometimes two years ago, I think it was. We are in Psalm 32 because of the large break that we had. But that's online too if you want to listen to that. But that is sort of the resolution of David coming uh, into this uh, place of forgiveness, this understanding that God is his God and he has been forgiven much. It's a wonderful psalm to see that resolution. But first of all this evening, we see the fear of God in, David's ser- in God's servant. We, f- we see the fear of God in David. David's fear of God, verses 1 through 3. He said in verse 1, O Yahweh, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. I just want to, we're not going to look at every verse closely. We don't have time tonight. Nothing comes close, though, than the terrifying idea of falling into the hands of the living God. I was thinking about that this week. And we'll look about this more because he goes further into it. But to come under the wrath of God is the worst conceivable end that we could meet. Because, as Edwards used to say, it's not an end. The way that Scripture talks about God's wrath is it's ongoing. God has the ability that no 
object of torture or pain could bring. He, perfect justice and righteousness in what he is doing. And that being met with the perfect understanding of the degree of judgment and torment that is needed out on the sinner, as well as the ability and, and the power within himself to keep life within that individual. It's an awful idea. It's the most torturous idea to the mind to imagine such a thing. And here is David pouring out his heart in the first verse, rebuke me not in your wrath, in your burning anger, chasten me not. There's nothing more terrifying. And, and here's the sensible nature of the psalm right off the bat. It is the beginning of wisdom, the, the proverb, beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. If God is who the scriptures say he is, it, this is only wise. This is only right as creatures. We have lost almost all measure of of what it is to behold greatness in this modern age, majesty. We become so dull and desensitized to what we should experience and feel in majesty. It's still there. Uh, it's, it re it's remarkable how even unbelievers, when they come into a presence of a scene in nature, how they're just, they're just that sense of smallness just instantly hits them. That sense of in inferiority hits them. And let me say this, it's right to feel small when we consider God and who he is. And David knows the Lord. And so this is important. He knows who to fear. He knows it's right to fear the Lord. For your arrows have sunk deep into me. Now something has come about in David's life, and your hand is pressed down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. Now, these are various ways David is describing why he understands the fear of the Lord, perhaps in a new light here. He believes he is being struck internally, the Bible says here, by God's arrows. These are directed at David. They're, they're pointed and they're on purpose firing at David. And they're not only just firing, but they've sunk deep into his flesh. And the hand of God, the, the idea is oppression here. He's holding him down. I used to, uh, there was a, some caves not far from my hometown in Great Falls. And we used to go spelunking. Anybody know what spelunking refers to? It's cave diving and stuff like that. And there were some rooms, we call them rooms, that you could get into, but you'd have to squeeze under a, basically a mountain and then the actual, what, what would have been the bottom of the mountain, but there was a crack between. And you'd squeeze through and you'd feel, and I was skinny at the time, so you'd feel the weight of the mountain on your back as you're sliding through. And I could just, when David says, the, the hand of God presses down on me, no mountain can compare to that. No mountain could compare to the, the pressure, the oppression that we would feel if God's hand was pressing, pressing down on us. And he says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. Why? Why does David 
believe these things are coming upon him. Well, he says there, because of your indignation. He is angry. He's asking God, remove your anger because he, he believes, and David has some insight here, that God is angry with him. Now, we have to be careful, I want to say, that, that we don't attribute every trial to God's wrath and God's anger upon us. We, we got to be very careful when we go through trials or we go through suffering that we don't uh, equivocate or, or I have the idea that there's a one-in-one sequence. We sin and God pays us back, like a karma sort of idea with God. Grace destroys any such notion of karma for a Christian. God is just, though. We know that. But when we come to Scripture, we are taught oftentimes. You, you have Job. You have the, the blind man in John chapter 9. You have our Lord Jesus Christ who was without sin and suffered more than any man because he bore our sin. But we have to be very careful when judging others when they go through trials that we presume, oh, they're going through that because of a particular sin God's judging them for or even ourselves. But we have to understand as well, David has some insight here, speaking inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's a man after God's own heart. God is with him. His Holy Spirit is in him. And he is sensible to the weight of his sin, which is the other thing that I want to say. Although we can't apply a one-to-one equivocation with our sin and God's wrath, we need to be sensitive to sin against God. We cannot take that, what we know that our judgment can't be final or absolute with our limited understanding, but we can understand what, Paul, what John, Paul, John, what the author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 7, that God is a loving Father and chastens those whom He loves. And that church, that community of believers that, he, that it was written to was under great persecution. And He says that in that context, God chastens whom He loves. And we know that Peter talks about our suffering as being a, a, a progress, a progress, uh, a sort of a smoldering or a smelting, a smelting of, of gold. When gold is tried in fire, the dross is burned away and it comes to be more pure. And so we, we have to understand that God does indeed chastise his people in this way. And yet we have to be careful not to judge improperly. The idea here that I want to bring out in this first point is that we must fear the Lord. That it's good and right to fear the Lord. The, the proverb says, 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. There is a sense where if we feared God rightly, we wouldn't sin. Of course, we don't fear God rightly then, because we always do sin. Even yet, we sin as believers. But the fear of God is actually a gracious grounds of influence for the believer. It's so we understand that God is not to be taken lightly. He is not to be offended. In David's case, we know a few things already. He was eventually stricken with guilt. Now, if we take that this comes after his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan confronts him with his sin, not quite a year after, but close. Do you realize that? David goes almost a year, and we believe that because um, when Nathan comes and confronts David, and that's Second um, Samuel chapter 12, when he confronts David, he, he tells David, this is, you're the man, and then the scene doesn't change. The Hebrew has no changing of time when the next scene is David's son is sick. 
And, and Samuel tells David, your house is going to be disordered. It's going to be violent because of the violence that you did to Uriah. That was from your hand by the Ammonites. But, but it's on you. You're going to be judged by it. And your son's life is going to be taken. And so that's nine months, give or take. Maybe more than my, nine months have passed by. David's been sort of just going about life. We don't, we don't have any sense in the text that by the, when he sins with Bathsheba and Uriah dies, he's married to Bathsheba, I believe, at the time. Although uh, Nathan calls Bathsheba Uriah's wife, interestingly enough. And then they have a child, but, but Bathsheba must be with David now. And so, but once Nathan comes and says, you're the man, there is a sense right there. The word of the Lord has come and there's guilt. When the word of the Lord comes and when we know we have sinned, let me say this, with the gospel we know our guilt is removed, but there is still a sense of severe disappointment, a sense of awe, a sense of reverence, a sense of fear of God that every believer should still retain when we sin. Second, the life of his son was taken as a result. We know that has happened, probably has already taken place if this is indeed written on this occasion. And third, David's assumption that God's indignation was the cause of his suffering, listen to this, this is important, did not spill over into unbelief or accusation. What is David doing already? He's coming to God. <laughs> this is so important. This is something the world cannot grasp. I was talking with Jason Barber today over here at the water cooler, the, the coffee, whatever that thing is, dispenser. And, and that is something that is alien to the mind of the unbeliever. That even in our sin, and this is, this is what is so important about this text, in our sin, believers know that God is our only hope. The, the unbeliever wants to run. Get me out of this. How do I get away from him? Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe if I flee from his presence, I'll get away. Maybe we can build up an army strong enough. Maybe, maybe my conscience can be seared and I won't have this guilt. But nevertheless, they will be found out. But the believer is not playing that game. The believer says, I need you when we sin. Isn't that, just knowing that from the beginning, and we see that throughout the rest of the psalm. I better move along. Uh, secondly, David's confession. Verses three, the end of verse three through five, the beginning of verse five. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. David's suffering is internal here. God's arrows pierced his heart, he said him. Pierced him internally. And it's oppressive like the hand of God pressing down on him. And it's pervasive even to the removing of the health of his bones in verse 3. And now we see why here. This is an insight that David has here in this text. God's chastisement is upon his servant, his anointed one. He says three things, because of my sin, verse 3, for my iniquities, verse 4, and my foolishness, verse 5. 
The helplessness of David doesn't merely pertain here to health then. It, it does pertain to health. We'll see even more that that's uh, expressed in this psalm. But the oppressed condition he feels is because, he says three times, because of sin, for my iniquities, my foolishness. He understands that sin is at the bottom of it. Don't ever let a trial go to waste. <laughs> Can I say that? Don't let a trial go to waste and, and, and act like if I can just get back on my feet, everything will be right. As I said this morning, when we're going through trials, pray that God sanctify you in them. That is a great grace. That God is at work in that is a grace. To, to deny it is to deny strength. No health in my bones because of my sin. The helplessness of David doesn't merely pertain to health here. It's because of my sin. He, he draws the comparison there, the, the, the um, connection there, the health in his bones because of my sin. He says, they, his iniquities, they're too heavy for me. Part of that oppression then is his sin. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. And and here we have to also admit that what's happening in David's life, and we'll see that also more, as a result of sin, can also abound to these ends. The fear that he has of God is joined with an acknowledgement that sin itself is perilous for him, and he cannot fix his peril himself. That's important. The fear that he has of God is joined with an acknowledgement that sin is perilous and he cannot fix himself. And so he's humbled. Notice what he says, verse 6. A, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. You know, we were talking this morning, as I mentioned with Jason. Jason's an Old Testament scholar. He has his PhD in the Old Testament. And he says, David is so full of so much gospel. <laughs> it is incredible. As I said, it's probable that he's physically sick, but the acuteness of his illness comes from the shame and the weight that he feels because of his sin. Third, David's agony. Verses 6 through 8, and then verse 10. All day I go about mourning. Anybody have days like that? For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Again, that could be associated with sin. But then he says again in verse 10, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. If we are to understand David's agony as regarding physical ailments, then we must marvel at the extent of his suffering. It's everywhere for him. He, he is literally hurting everywhere. He even may be hurting mentally. As we often ascribe mental conditions to physical maladies. Last year, you, some of you know that I went through some panic attacks because of the floods that we had when we were living down here. Years of that, and eventually it just got the better of me, and I'm at night, up at night, and my heart is pounding for no reason. I think I'm having a heart attack, and, and I find out that the pounding of the heart is a very serious problem. <laughs> when you don't know what it is. And here he says, my heart throbs. My strength fails me. There's a light, there's a awareness, an awakenedness that's gone from him. So this 
tumult, this pain, this suffering that he's going through is full and it's throughout his whole being, it seems. And so his response to this, all day I go about mourning. I groan, I roar, it could be translated. My strength fails me. Our strength does fail us. We're dust, the Bible says. More than that, David was betrayed and hated as all this was happening. He was betrayed, verse 11. He says, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. Now, this suggests almost that David has leprosy. People are standing away from him. That was the law. You stand off. But we don't have any indication in any other portion of Scripture that David was leprous. But if he had all these things wrong with him, physically speaking, there may be enough of things wrong with the person that even if he doesn't have leprosy, there are people backing away and saying, you know, God's hand's on you this way. I'm backing off of you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not. And here his friends and companions they're not close to him. They're not comforting him. They're alienated from him in this time. On the other hand, what if David is describing the sort of pain that sin causes when brought public? Remember, his sin was private for some time, we believe. Now it's known. What, all his soldiers? You mean you put, David put Uriah at the front of the battle because he committed adultery with his wife? He killed Uriah? What's he going to do with us? You start, David's the king. Now his sin is known. What, what is David going to do to me? Uriah was one of his great warriors, we know from Scripture. No one's safe with David. We can't trust him. And you see that the very result of his sin might be causing the alienation from his friends and companions. Even his nearest kin, his family, has moved away from him. How many friends of Uriah and Bathsheba were also friends of David who knew him very closely? We know that Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, is that his name? Ahithophel, I think is his name, kills himself because he so badly wanted to kill David, defeat David. He's one of the counselors for David's son who tries to take his kingdom. I think his name was Ahithophel, if I remember right. And so his friends desert him, his companions, his family even. Second, David has enemies. A king would have enemies. David had plenty of them. Verse 12 those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. Verse 19, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. David suffers with the knowledge that his enemies, while he's suffering probably in a severely weakened state. Here's a king supposed to rule a nation, and he, he, I'm sure he can't do it. Uh, 
I'm not a king. I don't rule any nation or people, but I do lead a church. And when I was sick recently, one of the great concerns of my mind and my thoughts was, how am I supposed to be a pastor of a church if I can't, you know, stay upright for more than a few hours at a time? If I get dizzy and lightheaded and brain fog and all of these things that were going on and my ear is going crazy. And, and you're disoriented, but, but then you have enemies, you see. David has enemies. And these are powerful enemies, verse 12. And they're vigorous and they have ambition. And David knows it. So he's laid up and they're busy. David is surrounded on all sides right here. His health is gone. He knows the weight of his sin before a holy God. He feels it in a right way. His friends and relatives have left him. He has been deserted and his enemies have only been encouraged by all of it. But he says, notice what he said there, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. How, how is this possible if indeed he believes God is chastising him for his sin? Now, the answer comes shortly because David re is repentant in this psalm as well. But he continues, even in his sin, as I mentioned, it is implied that he continues in faith, fearing God. Now, let this, I want to just give this quick application we have to be very careful when someone falls into sin and it becomes public. That if that person pursues after God in repentance, true repentance, and demonstrates true fruits of repentance, that we don't seek that condemnation, the burial, as it were, of that brother or sister in the Lord. You know, we can... Be very, it can be very dangerous for us to become like the American political system where there's no for forgiveness, right? Or like the new fashionable uh, critical race theory and wokeness out there where there's no forgiveness. There's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no means of forgiving someone and being forgiven. There's no gospel, we have to be very careful not to be those who would heap up disdain upon David while David is repenting. Now that means we've gone through severe hurt. You don't think people were hurt because of David's sin? The whole nation was, I'm sure, hurt. Thrown into chaos in many ways. His, his family line for a, a generation at least, but it, even as the kings of Israel span out and the nation split, in a, in a sense, that was as a result of David's sin. And yet, David is God's beloved. He belongs to God. And he's repentant. He fears God. I think that's what he means by following after good here. He is pursuing righteousness he's pursuing the favor of god and he doesn't do that by puffing himself up he says in verse 13 
not even before his enemies. I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth's mouth are no rebukes. And then he says in verse 16, I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips, for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. He is a humbled man here. He's, he's essentially put into practice what Jesus says, when you're reviled, do not revile. Paul says, when you're reviled, don't revile again. He has become like a deaf man. The, the anger, the animosity, the words are flying at him. He's not responding. Remember when Shim, Shimmy curses him? And he says, don't, don't. That's what I think of when I see this. Here's the king, and he's walking around, and, and he's humbled, and he's not repaying evil for evil. He's a humbled king right here. David's peril, as I've said, is not merely physical. It's relational, regards to men, friends, family. And he believes his suffering is due to sin. And so it's before God he's suffering. And yet, it's when he is brought low, it's when we are humbled that God's word says we will be exalted. For God's people, perhaps nothing is so concerning and terrifying as the thought of God's judgment or displeasure on us. Now we know that God's displeasure, his wrath, his judgment has been poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. But that gives us all the more urgency when we sin. The, all the more urgency to plead with God for forgiveness, to confess our sins before him, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that's what we see with David, his hope, number four, finally. Did I skip past three? Maybe I did. David's hope, verses 15, 18, 21, and 22. And there's three parts to it. First, David's hope is in the one true, the one true and sovereign Lord. Verse 15. Notice that the two words used for Lord here. But you, O Lord, all caps, do I wait. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer what, what David is saying here is quite profound, even as he differentiates between Yahweh and Adonai. He, he's saying there is one God. When he says Yahweh, he's saying there is one God, and he is sovereign. You go through trials, you want... In faith, you go through trials in faith, you delight that God is sovereign. There's a young lady that we know from another church on the island here, and she's had cancer already. She can't be much more than 30 years old. She has cancer already. It's come back and with a vengeance. She's going through severe pain right now. All the medical things that have been done to her and for her at this point have not helped her they're trying to get ahead of the pain is where they're at right now but god who is sovereign is her hope she's hoping not not just in 
God who is sovereign in this life, but God who is sovereign over all things, our soul. And this is David. For you, O Lord, do I wait. It's almost as if he's saying, in this condition that I am, I'm groaning, I'm deaf, I'm dumb, I'm in the, the worst trial and agony, but it's you that will make it better. And that's, that's, that's the plea of a Christian. Yes, we want to feel better. We, we go through the doctor. I think that's biblical to try to have means to help us. And yet, finally speaking, it is the sovereign God who we are seeking an answer to. Remember, it's more than just physical ailment David's struggling with. Second, he confesses his sin in verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. You see, he is on the path of righteousness here. This psalm could come across, as I said to the unbeliever, as one who, oh, this guy is just so worked up because of his sin. He just feels shame and weight. He just needs to live with himself and, 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 and what did they say? Accept his self for who he is, right? David is on the path of righteousness here. He's on the narrow way, if you will. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Here he is illustrating the truth of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a great hope. And this also reminds us, as I said, that in the categories in Psalm 37 are not those of those who sin and those who do not, the wicked and the righteous. It's those who, when they sin, the righteous man, what does he do? When he has sinned, he picks himself up. He confesses his sin. He repents of his sin. He seeks the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. That's what Psalm 37 was all about, wasn't it? We trust in the Lord. We seek after the Lord. We depend upon the Lord. We confess our own sinfulness before him, our own rebellion, our own weakness. We need God. Third, and finally, David's prayer for salvation, verses 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. We should, we should really memorize these psalms, shouldn't we? Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Now that is a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of faith. O Lord, my God, my salvation. Again, we see here, O Lord, Yahweh, my Elohim, make haste to help me. O Adonai, my salvation. This psalm teaches us many things of the virtue of the fear of God. David becomes somewhat of an object lesson for us here. But this should cause us to take heart. We are taught that God doesn't judge us according to his displeasure. He chastises us according to his love. That's what he, Hebrews 12, 7 says. It's his love by which he chastises us. And this is why we can say, and I think this is why David can say here, even with this prayer of pleading, my God, my Savior, For those of us who know that God has given his son, 
his only son, to remove our sins as far as the east is from the, the west. The memory of our sin is not before God, and yet we know that we are experiencing now sanctifying trials. I'm sure even all of us are at some point right now, to some degree. Sin, because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God, and we know that's been removed because of Christ. But we do well to recognize and return always to that awe and reverence of God, the weakness of our frame and our flesh, and our sinfulness still before God should cause us to fly from it and flee to God. That's the trajectory of this psalm. Lean not unto our own selves or our own understanding, but acknowledge him, trust in him. With all of this, we must not forget that because of our sin, because of our sin, God is our only hope. Isn't that incredible? As believers, we have that. <laughs> I think of Pilgrim's Progress and Hopeful. He has, we have that in our pouch. <laughs> the, the very thing that we would expect would separate us from God is why we need God. We need Him because we're sinners. And He has met the need of our salvation, the need of our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give Him praise because of that. Father, we praise Your name because we can hope in You, because we are sinful, we are surprised when we come to your word, we're surprised that in suffering we can rejoice. We have hope. Just, just like David here, going through torturous suffering, groaning all the day long under the burden of sin, the weight of it, physical ailment, desertion from friends, accusations and hatred and plotting from his enemies. In this world, he had no hope, but he had you. And we know that not only you're, you're his Savior, but you're ours through the Lord Jesus Christ, even his Lord. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Help us to remember it when we go through trials so that we will remember you the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.